You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You don't, you don't call retarded people retards. It's bad taste. You call your friends retards when they're acting retarded. And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, the show where the topic is everything, where occasionally the host uses the word retard or retarded, but you would never call a retarded person retarded. You call your friends retarded when they're doing something retarded, Michael Scott says. I don't know if that gets me uh, out of any hot water. Probably not. <laughs> okay, sirrah, sirrah. What do you do? This episode, I want to talk about a couple of different things that tie together and maybe not in the way that we all think. You know, as I was editing this Herman Bovink book here recently, it occurred to me that I've had somewhat of a different view of why it is these different strands of radicalism on the left come one after another. You know, first it's marriage equality, and then they hit you with something wild and crazy about the Green New Deal. And then the Green New Deal's not quite sticking, and so... We're going to switch gears to COVID. Climate change isn't working. Well, let's unleash a pandemic. Or we'll unleash something and then we'll call it a pandemic and shut everything down. And then that kind of wears off and everybody gets really frustrated and gets sick of it and they don't like it. And what is this? This is ridiculous. And so they switch back to transgenderism. Now we've got to be all concerned about transgenderism and World War Three. What is it with the left? It just float us from one emergency to the next, one crisis to the next. It's exhausting, right? And one could imagine that in some dark room, there are wealthy, ambitious, depraved masterminds who get together every now and then and say, what'll it be this month? What'll be this quarter? What should we move to next? And then once they've figured it out, then they distribute the uh, agenda to the media and to their paid for, bought and paid for politicians. And that's what happens. That's, that's what it becomes next. We're all supposed to act like we knew this. We've always been this way. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia since the beginning of your life, since the beginning of the party, since the beginning of history. The war has continued without a break. Always the same war. Do you remember that? From 1984 by George Orwell. But that's how it is. right? You could pull out clips from five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, where Democrat politicians especially were 
taking what is now considered the far-right radical position on an issue, stating it like it was the simplest, most obvious thing in the world. But then today, if a Republican says that thing, the response cannot be hyperbolic enough. If a conservative says those things, the response cannot get unhinged enough. It always boils down to the same things. You are phobic, right? It's not just enough that you disagree. You have some criticisms about certain people groups as a whole in general. You have some concerns about trans people, transgendered people, transsexuals, transvestites as they used to call them when I was a kid. No, you don't just have concerns. You are transphobic. So you are suffering from some sort of a mental illness, some sort of an emotional disturbance. You are mentally ill if you disagree with the left with regards to transgendered rights, whatever those are, as distinct from human rights in general. You're transphobic. Or, supposing the phobic thing doesn't work because you're not afraid, you might have some concerns, but you're not afraid, you're certainly not irrationally fearing transgendered people, the next thing you'll be hit with, you can be sure of it, is that you are hating that people group. You hate transgender people if you disagree with whatever the leftist position is is decided. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. So, there you have it. Do you have anything good to say at all about East Asia if you're scratching your head like, hey, weren't we actually allies with them just last week? Oh, buddy. You are a hateful bigot. And it's open season on you because, really, truly, I think a kind of mind control is the best way to describe the news cycle and the mainstream media and the corporate media and even the most popular social media sites. I think it could be fairly called mind control. It's crazy how, for somebody that digests those things uncritically, there is no reasoning with them until they hear it from some handsome or pretty talking head. It's not true. Oh, no. No, 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 no. And if they have heard something, which is totally contrary to all good taste, common sense, the laws of God and man but it's something that the left has decided they want now. And so they're pumping it into our brains via the mainstream media. You can't question it. You can't disagree with it. You can't criticize it. It's like there's just a a force field around their being able to hear you. They're being able to comprehend the rational argument. So it's a very curious thing. Very, very curious. I called, by the way, if you haven't 
been following the past several episodes. I called Christopher Hale from Tennessee, Tennessee's 4th District. He ran for Congress back in 2020 as a Democrat. I called Christopher Hale's remark about Marsha Blackburn needing to be removed from office and replaced by Tennessee. She's a United States senator from Tennessee. Uh, I called his remark retarded. I didn't call him retarded, by the way. I called his remark retarded. And I think I've ruffled a few feathers. I haven't heard anybody get all worked up to my face or anything. But I know how things go. I know how these sorts of things can go. And the crazy thing is, very often it's technicalities like that that trigger us. And I'm not even so sure that most of us know why they trigger us. Why is it that we are acclimated to salivate when the bell rings? And that's not to say we're all just mindless robots being brainwashed all the time. We have no genuine thoughts of our own. But it is to say, I think there's a kind of rationalization that we can engage in when we find out that a conservative has been censored on social media, for instance. The Babylon Bee podcast I was listening to yesterday was talking about how the Babylon Bee is still suspended from Twitter. The guy who founded the Babylon Bee, Adam Ford, he's been suspended from Twitter. The chief editor at the Babylon Bee has been suspended from Twitter. And all about jokes concerning transgenderism on the one hand, and on the other hand, China's forced labor of Uyghur Muslims and corporations who rely on, woke corporations no less, who rely on goods manufactured by Uyghur forced labor in China. So you make a joke about Rachel Levine being the Babylon Bee Man of the Year and you're done. And a lot of pleasant conservative types rush to say, oh, well, yeah, okay, it's kind of funny, but they didn't have to say that. that. That is pretty offensive, and we should be more winsome, and we should be more polite than that. That's kind of rude. Yeah, Babylon B, yeah, they, you know, I've never really cared for them, actually. And it's expedience, as we see it, many of us. And as I see it, it's cowardice, whether many of us recognize it or not. It's a kind of cowardice that we rationalize the persecution of people who agree with us by people who hate us, and they hate that we believe in an objective standard of good and evil, truth and falsehood, right and wrong. They hate us, and the only reason why it was that person instead of you this time is because that person was getting a little more gutsy and a little bit more assertive in saying the very things that you believe. But if his getting a little gutsier, a little more assertive than you get, lands him where he's at. What do you think happens once the radical left runs out of people who are as gutsy as he is? 
Well, then they're going to move on to the people who are just a little less gutsy, but maybe still a little more gutsy than you. And they eliminate those folks, and you're going to rationalize it for them as well. Well, you know, yeah, it's not right, but they did kind of ask for it. They did kind of have it coming, you know? Like, they could have said that differently. They could have approached that differently than they They didn't have to put it that way. They didn't have to use that word. They didn't have to. No, it's a, yeah. And then, don't you know it, at a certain point, they come for you. At a certain point, they've eliminated all the people who are gutsier than you, and it's down to just the people who are as brave as you are. And you find yourself in the same boat. And now it clicks. But now it's too late. Because the gutsier people, you didn't have the back of. For shame. This time around, it's going to be transgenderism. And I'm not saying that we all need to get bent out of shape. Right? The choices are not so bipolar as either get entirely out of sorts or say nothing or affirm it. Right? There are other options besides those. But transgenderism is what was warned about when the whole marriage equality thing started up. You know, I started blogging with my cousins Marshall Mullet and Micah Hirschberger oh, six years ago, seven years ago, something like that. And the impetus was the Supreme Court ruling on so-called marriage equality. And it was an act of judicial activism. It was not an act of constitutional interpretation, good jurisprudence. It was an act of legislating from the judiciary. And it wasn't very good legislating. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to legislate from the judiciary and destroy the whole idea of separate but equal powers, I mean, at least come up with something good, not two dudes promising to love each other till death do them part. Two chicks saying one of us is going to be the more masculine, one of us is going to be the more feminine. It's you and me together for the rest of our days, babe. You know, that's, that's, that's what you're going to come up with, really? And what would have been better is for the government to just get out of marriage entirely. But of course, that wasn't going to happen. That was not to be. And yet, conservatives... At the time, before this was decided, before the dust had settled, conservatives said, if this Pandora's box is allowed to be propped open, you're opening it, but if you are allowed to prop this open and make this the official law of the land, arrest, jail, fine, haul into court, pillory, anyone who criticizes gay marriage, so-called, if you do this, next it's going to be transgenderism, bestiality, pedophilia. The line of argument that you're using, the type of argument that you're making, will be able to transplant right over. Now, they also said polygamy. Polygamy would be another thing. I don't think that's the end of the world, that that might come back. 
God had relationships with patriarchs and kings in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, who were polygamous. Not to say we should all be polygamous, and not even to say that any of us should be. I think every example that comes to mind is a cautionary tale. Not a one of those situations turned out bright and beautiful that I can think of. They all had their attendant challenges, although monogamous marriage also carries with it its attendant challenges. People, right? Just people. People in general. And yet, this book that I'm writing on marriage, I took a break from it this past set of days off because I was working on the Herman Bobbing book, editing the Christian philosophy of science. This marriage book that I'm writing, I really want to emphasize that, yes, nothing's perfect, but that goes for singleness as well as it goes for marriage. And when we're talking about marriage and its attendant challenges and the reasons why more young people aren't getting married to begin with, they're not getting divorced at the same rates that their parents did and their grandparents did, but that's because they're not getting married to begin with. And when we look at that, what does that mean? What should that tell us? You know, it's a curious business to write this book not so many years after the marriage equality business. Because the people that I'm writing it for, the generation that I'm writing it for primarily, is not my generation. I'm not talking about my generation. I'm talking, first and foremost, to my children's generation. And for my children, think about this, you who are older. The world looks different. This country looks different growing up in it. And so-called marriage equality having always been the law of the land. Equal to what, right? That should be the question. What is heterosexual marriage equal to? What is homosexual marriage equal to? Oh, they're equal to each other? No. If they are, then you're really doing it wrong. You're really doing the heterosexual marriage thing wrong. You just, mm -mm. and of course we were, right? Or at least a great many of us were. You want to be careful not to paint with too broad of a brush. It's too easy to say, ah, the whole church is like this and all Christians are like this. And it's no, 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 no. You do have faithful Christian testimony here and there. It might not be everyone. It might not be even most of everyone. But it never has been. You know, why it is the path that leads to destruction? Many there are who follow it. Narrow is the path that leads to life. You know, it's interesting, this whole business with Will Smith having slapped Chris Rock. Of course, everyone's heard of it. And as I said here recently on this podcast, I thought about recording an episode talking about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. I thought about making that an episode. And my conclusion was, you know what, I just I need to take a little bit more time to think about this, to process, because I feel conflicted. And I, I'll just, I, I will share with you how I feel conflicted about this whole business 
And let's just think out loud for a moment here about the things that we know are true and good and beautiful. First and foremost, I do think that it is good and right and proper that a husband defends his wife's honor, generally speaking. And I don't mean that specifically in this case because there are other factors that are relevant. But generally speaking, broadly speaking, I think it is a good and praiseworthy and appropriate thing when a man defends his wife's honor. And if Will Smith giving Chris Rock an open-handed slap for all the world to see, if that was in any way justified, it was justified on the grounds that that's Will Smith's wife Chris Rock is talking about. He's being disrespectful in front of the world. And Will Smith was standing up for the honor of his wife. So that's truth number one, as I see it. It is good for a man to stand up for the honor of his wife, to defend the honor of his wife. In fact, I think it's good for men in general. I come from a part of the country, call me old-fashioned, I come from a part of the country, and I was raised with the mindset that men in general, men of character and courage and conviction, stand up for the honor and integrity of women around them, even if they're not your mom, your wife, your sister, your girlfriend, even if they're not any relation to you whatsoever, the fact that they're a woman, if that guy over there is being a rude jerk about them, you square up and you demand that he apologize and that he treat her with some respect, with some dignity. That's what I'm used to. It doesn't matter <laughs> if you even know the gal. You know, I distinctly remember being a kid and someone engaging in some pretty foul language in mixed company, and I think it was even just a public place. It was a public place, and we didn't know the guy who was popping off with the profanity, and we didn't know the woman who was present either. I I could be totally misremembering and totally imagining this, but I don't think I am. I'm at the store maybe with my brother and my dad, but at least with my dad. And my dad doesn't even miss a beat. He just says to the guy, he says, hey, we don't talk that way around ladies. And the guy wants to protest and, no, 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 no. That's not appropriate language to use around a lady. We show ladies respect. And of course, you know, this guy is like just totally blindsided, doesn't know what hit him. Like, <laughs> And sadly, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the tragic consequences of our having bought into the egalitarian notion is that when you insist on treating men and women completely the same, totally the same uniformly, because you think thereby you're proving that they have equal worth, that their worth is, I guess, downstream of how they're treated, which is a scary thing. Once you start getting treated terribly, it's like, ah, okay, well, based on what you believe, you apparently think I'm life unworthy of life. Okay. I just wanted to be 
sure we're clear on that. But the radical egalitarian approach to gender leads to exactly what we see in the swimming world with Leah Thomas. Right? At a certain point, the egalitarianism wants to devour even there being such a thing as men and women. And then it's just a free-for-all. And with the left being such as it is, believing that what comes later is going to be more highly evolved, survival of the fittest, looking for the next evolutionary savior. Transgenderism is nothing new, by the way. It's nothing new. That's the odd, crazy thing. And in fact, there is no new thing under the sun. But they want to say new and improved. Right Here is new and improved, just released. Go out and get it now. New and improved humanity. And yet, what it really is, is it is the destruction of the concept of men and women. And so, okay, what you thought you were getting, what you thought you were signing up for, was that men and women now are going to get paid dollar for dollar, cent for cent, exactly the same thing for the same work. Oh, wait, what? Huh? Oh, men and women don't always do the same work. In fact, they very often do very different work. They're drawn to very different types of work because of testosterone and the effect that it has on the brain, on their thought life, their emotional life, their physical strength, endurance, aggressiveness. What? Huh. It is a very shameful, ignorant, and yes, retarded, retarded thing to suppose, if you are a man, that all women would be more tolerable and better if they were like men. What a, that, that, that is bigoted, actually. That is a bigoted thing to say. What's not bigoted is to say, being a man, it's good to be a man. Women? I'm not a woman, so I can't say it's good to be a woman, but I can say I really appreciate women, especially when they're feminine, when they're sweet and pleasant and gentle and kind and considerate and beautiful the way God intended. I really appreciate, the woman says, when men are courageous and strong and brave and hardworking and dedicated, committed, and engaged the way God intended. And it isn't to say that all of these traits line up over here only and all of these traits line up over there only, but it is a question of proportions and ratios and men and women are different by God's design. And I'm not a bigot for saying that men and women are different by God's design. I'm not a bigot for saying that is a good and glorious and beautiful and wonderful and true and righteous thing that God did that. And when I write this book, as I'm writing this book, that's something I really want to make clear is that our disagreement with the idea of gender, for one thing, makes it impossible for us to have a healthy biblical concept of marriage. But for another thing, it isn't first and foremost a rebellion against social norms. It isn't first and foremost a rebellion against tradition and convention. 
you know, if I say I am for quote unquote traditional marriage, heterosexual marriage, if I say I am for cisgender expression, you were born a boy, well, you're a boy. And when you grow up, you'll be a man. Right? When I say that, and then you say the opposite, I say, oh, no, 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 we need to deconstruct heterosexuality, heteronormativity. We need to deconstruct cisgenderism. How dare you? No, you're not first and foremost rebelling against me. You're finding fault with the God who created us in this way. It is God who instituted marriage. It's God who created gender. And whether you think there should be no gender at all, and everyone should be asexual, polyamorous, androgynous, or you think there should be a whole lot more genders. There should be 5,000 genders, which is as good as saying there are no genders. Everybody's just an individual. Everybody's a beautiful butterfly. We're all unique and wonderful. Yes, you are special. Not the way you think, though. Not the way you think. That's not me being a bigot to say. It's you being a bigot to hold that heterosexuality is not good enough for you. God's plan for marriage is not good for you. Not good enough, anyways. Maybe it would be okay, but it's not good enough. You deserve better, right? You know better, actually, is what it comes down to. Because you are better, as you think. You think that you're better than God. It's a very hubristic thing to say. It's a very hubristic thing to believe. It's a very dangerous, bound-to-fail sort of thing to say. You know, the crazy thing, and this is where everybody's going to want to cancel me all at the same time, and I trust the good Lord that he'll be pleased anyways, maybe all the more. But this whole notion of being holier than God in our making more strict the commands that God has given... If God says that it's wrong, it's foolish for us to be drunk with wine, well, we're going, we're going to improve that. We're going to say if you even have a drink, one drink in the evenings after work when you come home, hard day, you're trying to unwind a little bit, you even have a beer, we're not going to give you our blessing to marry this young lady, this young single woman in the church. What if I told you that attitude is not only you trying to be holier than God, because God didn't say that, but also that mindset leads directly to the mindset of we can make human beings better by abolishing gender, abolishing heteronormativity, abolishing all of these various norms. It starts with you working within the framework and pretending that this is how we're going to honor God. But at its root, if you were questioned, if you were challenged, which you should be in the church of all places, hey, wait a second, where does it say that? It is written. I need to hear and see book, chapter, verse to support the counsel that you're giving. Otherwise, you need to fess up. This is just your opinion, and you're on a little bit of a power trip right now, and you're flexing. Oh, ho, ho, I'm out. 
Oh, ho, ho. I need to be under church discipline? What? No. So here's a trouble. In the arbitrary exercise of power by God's people, if we start cooking up our own rules and standards, it, and again, I'm going to shock your socks off. Maybe, maybe not. When I say, I think that Veggie Tales is a form of this. Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And then what do we do with our children? We raise our children on Veggie Tales, suggesting in having sanitized everything that there's something untoward and unacceptable, something deficient in the details that are included in the biblical stories that we want to adapt. We want to clean those up for kids. Oh, you know, well, they're pretty young. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're going to quite understand. You know what? They'll never understand so long as you think you know better than God. All scripture is profitable, but you don't think that. You think you can make it more profitable by editing out the objectionable bits. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the sermon that Paul Pavlik preached this past Sunday. And the subject of the sermon was Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40, I believe. What more shall I say, the author of Hebrews writes, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains at imprisonment. And you should definitely read all the rest of it. But the point is this. Paul Pavlik, pastor and friend of mine here in Greeley, Colorado, at Summit View Community Church, gave us character sketches for Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And it was glorious. And part of why it was glorious is because these guys make it into the Hall of Faith and yet, have you read their stories? Have you read what they did in some cases? What they didn't do in some cases? Have you read some of the things that they said? Or you're just like, that is not polite Christianity. That is not going to be a VeggieTales skit. That is not going to make it. That will never be a story told with flannel graph. Except, perhaps to satirize. I say that. And Babylon B, if you're listening, please, please, please come through for us. We need some flannel graph YouTube videos talking about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel in greater detail. Also, while you're at it, Ehud killing Eglon. And I'm sorry, but Here's the thing. There's a kind of disconnect with reality that gets worse and worse and worse when those claiming Christian faith say, I can improve on what it is that God has said. Now, and, and this isn't to say there's something wrong with an opinion. There was a really excellent apologetic talk Kale Rogers gave 
this past Wednesday. It was a talk that I was scheduled to give, and then weather, it, just, it was like week after week, we were getting snowstorms on Wednesdays. It was like the whole rest of the week would be totally clear, and then Wednesday, like clockwork, it was like it was scheduled. It was like it was providential, maybe even. Maybe God didn't want us to meet some of those weeks because he had something else planned. I don't know. Surely, but I don't know. But Cale Rogers gave a talk on what is young earth creationism and why does young earth creationism hold that the earth is four to 6,000 years old. And he talked briefly about the scientific process and how we have facts, we have the organization of facts, we have the interpretation of facts, we have theories, we have opinions. And each of these might have its place, but we have to differentiate. An opinion is not the same thing as a fact. Our interpretation of a fact is not the same thing as a fact. There is the evidence, and then there's our interpretation of the evidence. And we all have biases, as Herman Bavink says. We all have biases. It is impossible for us to not. It's just a question of which of those biases line up with reality and which don't. And believe it or not, atheists, you're in the same boat that we are as Christians. You have to take it on faith. Some of the things that you believe and refuse to believe, you have to take it on faith. It is a question of faith first. And for the Christian, we believe that we will all someday know, even as we are fully known. I love that Cale went there with 1 Corinthians while talking about the science here. I love it. It was a great talk. He did a phenomenal job. I was busy editing Herman Bobbink anyways. So it was really actually, I think, providential in that way, especially. But the positivist science, which we recognize as ascendant, dominant, in control, and I pray that the Lord will help us in changing that fact. I should like it very much if we could upset that. And if COVID can't upset our confidence in the positivist way of doing science, what can? And this is really a moment for Christian scientists, scientists who operate with a Christian philosophy of science, stepping to the fore with courage and conviction and testifying not only to the truth in the abstract, but specifically to the truth about God and about us according to God. We think that we are making better people when we edit out some of the things that God says about us. God says, this is good. And we say, well, you know, sometimes people get a little carried away with that good thing. Let's see if we can forbid them from doing that because sometimes they get carried away. Yeah, God, you know, that's a really great idea and all, but I'm super conceited and arrogant and foolish enough to suppose that I can improve on what you've said. And so actually I'm going to prohibit what it is that you have made, this good gift that you have made, I'm going to prohibit it rather than trying to learn how to be self-controlled in relation to it. I'm just going to say, nope, nobody can have it. 
Oh, you know, God, this thing that you said we can't do, shouldn't do, dare not do. Yeah, you know about that. Sometimes people really, really, really want to do that thing, actually. They really, really want to. And when they want to bad enough, we've decided we're going to love them by encouraging them and celebrating them doing the thing that you told them not to do under any circumstance because it's evil and heinous and abomination. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for speaking up there. Good thoughts, but um, yeah, I think we're going to go a different direction with that. Again, because we're arrogant, conceited, puffed up. And for anybody who was thrown for a loop by my episode from a couple of days ago, I'm going to emphasize through repetition what I'm talking about. That kind of thinking comes into the church very, very easily when we show partiality towards people with wealth who are successful in the world. If we give greater weight to their being successful in the world, then we give scrutiny to do they have godly wisdom? Do they have discernment? Do they have a Christian understanding of the scriptures? Do they have a godly attitude? Are they operating within the church sphere out of selfish ambition and vain conceit? You know, these are all questions we've got to ask, but when we don't, you can find a very short trip from point A to point B, with point A being whatever the corporate, international, globalist, let's water it down, let's all have the same morality, the same religion, the corporate diversity, equity, inclusivity approach. You can find that very quickly in the church. The open, tolerant, watered-down approach to speaking to social ills with the truth of the gospel, calling for repentance, preaching good news, absolutely, but starting with the bad news, you can find that coming into the church if you're not careful, if you don't watch your foot, watch your step. But we have to be very careful. We have to be diligent. And how you take care is you're testing everything against the scriptures. We have to be in the scriptures. We have to be reading them and studying them. And there's no substitute for the humility of, you know what, God, whatever you say here, that's sufficient for me. I don't understand it always. But also, you're God and I'm not God. And that I understand. The Proverbs tell us that that is the beginning of wisdom. We have a great deal of knowledge. We have perhaps more knowledge at our fingertips today than at any point in human history, ever. All six to 10,000 years of it. And yet, without wisdom, we will use every bit of that knowledge to destroy ourselves and everything around us. We just will. It'll take an act of God to stop us. And lo and behold, that's precisely what he tells us to expect at some point, though we don't know quite, quite when, precisely when. We should be sober about it. We should be serious about it. We should live on mission like it. And we shouldn't be fatalistic either. I, and I'm saying all this, and I'm trying to be very clear and very blunt, but we shouldn't be fatalistic. We shouldn't lose hope. We shouldn't be discouraged like, hey, what's the point? Garrett, what's this you're talking about? Doing science. So I'm, I'm supposed to put all the hard work into 
becoming a scientist just to lose my job when I start doing science according to the Christian philosophy of science. Oh, how's that going to work? Oh, I don't know. Maybe you could trust God in that. Have you considered maybe just trusting the Lord in that? Walking by faith, not by sight. Leaning not on your own understanding, but on all your ways, acknowledging him. Believe me, believe you me, that is not easy. That is very often scary, dangerous even, and yet safer than anything, on the other hand, and more comforting than anything, and more invigorating than anything. We have such a limited imagination, really truly, compared to God. That's one of the things you appreciate when you do a little bit of science with and from the Christian philosophy of science. You start to appreciate the genius, the grandeur, the majesty of our maker. He is so detail-oriented. He's so creative. He is so good. He is so majestic. He is so epic. He is so wise. He is so good. And what does that mean when you consider the works of his hands? It means something very robust and holistic. Not the vapid, vain, thoughtless mantra, the bumper sticker Christianity mantra. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Sorry to anybody I'm offending by saying I find that vapid. I find it vapid for its repetitiveness. Sing to the Lord a new song, I think also should apply to some of the phrases that we overuse. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good. Okay, yeah, but what about the rest of the chapter? Did you, do you know, have you, you know, the irony of ironies is that a lot of Christians who love that verse maybe would not buy a t-shirt, a bumper sticker, a wall plaque, vinyl, uh, stencils or whatever for the wall that talked about taking a wife, having sons and daughters, giving your sons and daughters in marriage. Like you wouldn't put that verse up on the wall. That would be weird. People walk in and they're like, huh? Oh yeah, it's my life verse. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Right? (laughs) I definitely want to get a wall plaque and hang it in my bedroom. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. (laughs) But it's just weird, right? We're not supposed to take verses out of context and repeat those verses over and over and over again like some kind of a magical incantation that's not the way it works we're supposed to consider that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable all scripture is profitable for four very important things so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work oh wait what for every good work every every good work what do you mean? I'm supposed to I'm supposed to work? Yes. Yes, you're supposed to work. 
And oh, by the way, that certain verse from Jeremiah chapter 29 that you love so much, some of the work, a lot of the work that you could be doing is finding a pretty wife, talking her into getting married to you, building a nice home. Might do that first. Ask the Lord, you know, by all means. But build a house, plant a garden, take a pretty wife, particularly one who wants to have lots of kids with you. Have sons and daughters. Raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Give them in marriage. There's some good work. Let your family life be a testimony to the world that doesn't know God, who suppresses by its wickedness the truth about God. There's some work. I got to leave it there, though. That's enough for this episode. I've been going over long here lately, and I'm going to have to scale it back, stepping down as if I was quitting smoking. Slowly step down, gradually, shorter and shorter episodes till we get closer to that 30-minute, 40-minute mark again. Good luck to me. But, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.